You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 5. The Starlit Eyes. From the Journal of Abigail Gray, District of Columbia, April 1st, 1883. With Harry now in tow, we proceeded onward through the corridors of Langley and toward the wardroom. I had seen how clearly smitten with Harry's creation James had been, though this shy girl also seemed to be turning his head. She smelled of engine oil and leather, and had a deliberate way of moving that was kind of pleasant. Finally at the war room we found what James had guessed on the road was at the core of this enterprise, a large map of the eastern states of America ending in the pan-state line that ran from Minnesota down to Louisiana. It was dotted with a hundred small figurines and looked, for all the world, like an extremely complex and strategic game. Presiding over this was a red-jacketed man and a woman in blue. They looked up together. Her expression was warm and gracious. His bore a curious cocktail of both suspicion and intrigue. One thing I could not deny was how much more grand the pair seemed than I had estimated. It's hard to imagine two people being able to coordinate a whole nation back together, but with their immediately apparent blend of smarts and assertiveness seemed like they might just manage it. Sergeant Abigail Gray, this is the director and co-director of the National Intelligence Agency. They also co-wrote the cartography... Will you two sign your autographs in my handbook? Oh, for God's sake. Of course we will. Thomas? The man strode up, standing eye to eyes, studying my face and frame in a manner that reminded me of James, and took the book from my hand. They passed it back and forth, signing diligently. Let the ink dry before you close this. Of course. Thank you, sir. In my search for signatures, I had become quite fascinated with how a person presented something of themselves in handwritten lettering. I glanced now at the two names, one with elegant loops, the other with sharp, curved flourishes, and I kept my tone civil and respectful. As I was saying, Sarah Arlington co-wrote the handbook, but it looks like you already knew this. I've talked to people, found out a little about you two, got a checklist of the important figures who contributed to your book, crossed off the dead ones, obviously. We met Dr. Kaufman this morning. He was a good egg, huh, James? (sighs) As I spoke those words and they hung in the air, I instantly regretted them. I'd had one chance to make a good first impression, and I'd blown it. These are the two you were talking about? They're seasoned cartographers, sir, since last October. And may I just state now my admiration for your cause, the work you've done, and what you've achieved, and your, uh, daughter here. That's right, she's so goddamn smart. You guys did good. Thank you. From the corner of my eye, I could see a definite blush in Harry's cheeks. Major Butler, could you get our guests a drink, please? Pines and McTavish will be here in a moment. Cabinet's over there behind the painting of George Washington. I didn't even know this was back here. We rarely drink on the job, but this one's pretty special. Scott, you two? Got any bourbon? Ooh. Excellent taste, Miss Gray. It's ten in the morning. Sarsaparilla, then, Doctor. Yes, please. And, if it's all the same to you, I'll have the Irish malt. I invited truth as well. Well, wonderful. Things will go so much easier with her here. Considering her role, I figured she was kind of important. As Thomas Arlington, 
the most powerful man in America, possibly the world now, gruffly pulled out chairs around the map table for us. We were joined by a bright-eyed, bespectacled young fella and a grim-looking, red-bearded gent. This is Jeremy Pines and Donald McTavish. They head up our department of the paranormal, which I believe this more than qualifies as. Hello there. It's so exciting to finally meet you two. Behind us, a yellow-jacketed girl who looked remarkably similar to Harry entered the room. From the glances she exchanged with the Arlingtons, I picked up on the familial relationship even before Butler had introduced her by name. This is Truth Arlington, White House Communications Director. A pleasure. Hi, Harry. Hey, Truth. All right, first things first. I am starting my Vox tube now. Dr. Penrose, I read your deposition when Pines here bought it to me. Sergeant Gray, would you be kind enough to furnish the room with what was on that deposition? What happened to you two at the House of Respect on Briar Hill, West Virginia, on the night of October 20th and the small hours of October 21st, 1882? You want the whole thing? Because that could take about six and a half hours. How about you start with what we need to know? Provided I can get every detail later. Okay. Well, like James wrote in there, Captain Oakley and the two of us were riding back from Clearwater, uh, New Athens, on the evening in question, and we had to stop somewhere for the night. What with the Wendigos and all, it didn't feel safe to just set up a tent in the middle of a field. So there was this mansion about the size of Weirwood. That's where we came from originally. Well, not originally, but we lived there for more than nine years. This other mansion was just kind of tucked away beyond a trail in the woods. It had a front gate, was rusted shut. That's one of the many things that interests me about this story. It means the occupants of the house never left the ground. Not in this world, no. That's what I was thinking. Sorry, what? Let me tell you about the two that lived there. An old professor by the name of Krieger and his wife, I suppose. Her name was Greta, and she kept a blindfold on on account of her blindness. Whole house was set up to guide her around it in the dark. Lucky for us. Captain Oakley, you were here for all this? I was, for the first part of the evening. And you followed procedures? Yes, sir. I gave Krieger and Greta the handbook to read myself. And did that agitate them? A little, but in a good way. They were actually very complimentary of you and your plans for America. Uh Uh-huh. Krieger said the cartographers represented hope, but that was later when he was talking about Pandora's box. That's another part of this. Do you think that he could have been speaking literally? I'd considered that myself. James wondered if the Wendigo plague came from a box. The orb came from a box. If anything, I think Krieger was preparing us for what we found there that night. I think he was trying to set in our minds an acceptance of the negative and the positive. But there could have been other layers we haven't encountered yet. There were wendigos in the woods, and they closed in around midnight. We only managed to save one of the horses. I had to ride out to get us help. And that's when the professor and his wife stepped through a wind door and into another world. Yes. We believe so. My theory is that Greta possessed the ability to open and close these doors herself. That her blindness was caused by this ability. Or at the very least, connected. Dr. Penrose, 
If this is true, it may completely change our approach to how we conduct our reunification. I've been dying to ask this for months. Are these people known to you? Any word of their being seen? No. Ah, I knew it. Much to our chagrin. We've been looking since we first got this report. Long before the Arlingtons took interest. It's possible they just made a new home in another place entirely. We may never hear from them again. That doesn't mean we won't look for them. But also, oh boy, that may not be necessary. Because we are sitting here with the both of you right now. As this bouncy little guy said these words, he pointed his index fingers like a set of pistols at our eye patches. I... I distinctly recall before they walked through their door and disappeared, leaving the two of us alone... We weren't alone. ...that Greta's eyes were starlit and shining, but not shining in the starlight, shining with starlight. We could see the deepest space of the night sky within her eyes. So then, one thing led to another, and... You mean the ghost? The entity we encountered... When left by ourselves... Who's telling this story? At the moment, everyone. So we're stuck in the dark. And I've been feeling this female presence all around me. I get it in my head that it's Charlotte, a woman that Krieger and Greta used to live with. And he claimed she was Greta's sister, but I don't buy that. Why not? Because James found auburn and blonde hair in their big-ass bed upstairs. He was sleeping with both of them. Up until the point Charlotte died, that is. Doesn't mean they weren't sisters. I met Charlotte. I understood how she felt about those two. They weren't sisters. Much of this is conjecture. It is, of course, very difficult to prove or verify gut feelings about possible spiritual entities. But aside from Krieger's word, which is spurious at best, especially considering what he was covering up, we have found no evidence to suggest the living Greta and the dead Charlotte were in any way related by blood. They may, however have both been wives to the professor. I can attest that both were talented artists, Charlotte with paint, Greta with the violin. And, yes, the state of the bed would suggest a level of intimacy beyond mere fondness. So this ghost leads us downstairs after scaring the shit out of us. Pardon your French. Scaring the shit out of you. I was merely startled. And we start looking for secret doors and hidden rooms. Which we eventually found behind the bookcase... For you see, poor Charlotte had been walled in and had died back there. That's horrible. And we found a box. And used a key we also found. And inside was this black starlit orb. Looked just like Greta's eyes. Charlotte's too. The ghost had eyes like that. I know, right? Isn't this amazing? I was all for not touching the orb. But we somehow ended up doing so anyway. Both together... And And there was this flash and a surge of energy. We were quite overcome. Can we skip this part? I'm afraid we need this in detail. Fine. James and I kissed one another. I don't know why. Must have been something about the orb. We blacked out soon after. And when we came to... Our eyes had changed. Can we finally see them? Agent Pines was leaning forward over the table, practically panting with anticipation. I downed a slug of bourbon and pulled off my hat, glancing at James. As one, we removed our patches and gazed at the other occupants of the room who craned in to look at our strange, unsettling eyeballs. James had his on the left. Mine was on the right. That... Wow. ...is 
haunting. Wow. We can't let people see this. It will play terribly. Hence why I got them the eye patches. Personally, I think they look striking. In a good way. Me too. I've seen worse. I'm far more interested in what this means than what they look like. What can you see with them? For my part, nothing. Just blackness. I can see some stuff. Whoa, I... Sergeant Gray? Well, in my side, though not for James, some people have kind of like an outline, a glow. When I close my good eye, Mr. and Mrs. Arlington, I can still see your shape and your uh, color with my starlet. What color? Red and blue. Just like your coats. Am I a color? It's hard to say. There's a lot of conflicting brightness in this room right now. What do these colors entail? How should I know? Ask Pines here. He's the man who seems to know all about the weird shit. This is new to me. I've read a little about Auras, but you don't want to make that the basis for a hypothesis here. My suggestion would be that someone assesses the data from a hundred or so different people, perhaps combine that with the personality tests. Pass. The extra sensory perception and affinity with the windows could be linked. Or it could mean nothing. So you woke up and had those eyes. And the orb was black, flat, dead. Empty. I get it. And you think the ghost wanted you to find this thing? Can I put the patch back on? It's... Hard to concentrate in here. Please do. Yes. I think that's exactly what happened, Harry. She wanted to give this to us. And I know I'm right, because afterward, I saw her one last time and her eyes were normal. Could be a curse rather than a gift. For me, it has been. I haven't experienced a single positive effect, only a crippling diminishment of my abilities as a surgeon. I'm sorry, James. It ain't all amazing superpowers for me, either. James doesn't have the dreams I do. What kind of dreams are we talking? The confusing and scary kind. Did you have these before the incident? Not like this. This might be the trauma of the Wendigo attack on the house at Briar Hill. You two barely got out alive. Yeah. If it hadn't been for Annie and... and Carl... And the other troops they brought with them, we'd have been goners for sure. But these dreams go way beyond that. I get flashes of doorways and color, and I know part of that has to come from this eye. It's a similar feeling to when I had it open just now. Similar brightness, but sometimes it's far away. And when I wake up, I can still feel it. I can still see these smudges a lot, like pinpricks in the distance. That's why we came to you after the second edition of the handbook was released. All that stuff at the end about doors in the air. You asked for people to step forward if they had any information. Well, I think this qualifies. These smudges of light. Can you tell me where you see them, Sergeant Gray? There's one particular one comes and goes. Kind of a dirty yellow color. It's small, but impossible to ignore it, like a grain of sand in my eye. And how often has that happened? Since last fall? A dozen times, at least. Can you see it now? I flipped my eye patch once again and stood up, turning away from the blind and brightness of the room. 
I separated myself from James and his cyan glow and closed my good eye, searching with the starlit out across the black until I had a bead on it. Sure enough, that yellow burning ember was out there, where it always lay. And behind and around it, I could make out others, floating, bleeding, like bright ink in dark water. I pointed firmly and was aware that Thomas Arlington had pulled out a compass. When I turned back and flipped my patch down again, a length of cord had been laid on the map table, connecting Washington, D.C. with an area down southwest. I moved closer and saw that it was Mississippi. So, this pretty much confirms it, sir. James, Abigail, you two won't know this, but I've just gotten back from Parkersburg. I spoke to someone out there whose testimony corroborates your Briar Hill incident. That means you suddenly became very important people to talk to. While I was on my way back, Donald here has been trying to get a hold of you over the wire network. Can't missing you. So that's why we had an appointment already. And from what you've said to back it up, I think that we have both our point of origin and the woman who can help to find it for us. We may be able to do more than that. You have been listening to episode 5 of Steamheart, The Starlit Eyes, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Thomas Arlington and James Penrose, performed by Alexander Shaw. Sarah Arlington, performed by Maureen Foley. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harriet Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Truth Arlington, performed by Theo Lee. Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Donald McTavish, performed by Derek Ritchie. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Prospector Theme, Thunder Dreams, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs>